Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yes, welcome back to another episode of the Two Sharp Reds. I'm feeling a bit flat today because I'm not sure if you've heard, but England and the UK has gone into another uh, lockdown for at least four weeks. So here on the Two Sharp Reds, it's important that we keep our spirits up. Uh, myself, Ollie Geel, and of course, Australia's third favourite son in Mark Schwarzer. Our aim is to try every bottle of red that we can physically get our hands on and then compare it to a player past or present. And, Mark, I've got to say, now's the sort of perfect time to be trying every red we can get our hands on because we're going to be indoors for at least another month. Well, as of Thursday, isn't it? So it's the calm before the storm. So we're we're, we're preparing to go into lockdown. Make sure you restock that wine cabinet. Um, Fortunately enough, I've still got quite a few bottles in my my cellar and uh, I should be fine for at least another 10-year lockdown, I think. Plenty to talk about, as there is in the Premier League. But before we get stuck into all the news, um, what red wine are you tasting today, Mark? I'm going for a Portuguese, and it's a Vinha do Fava. Beautiful label, once more. We love our labels. Yeah, I do. I do love a nice, nice label as well. You know, I think it's pretty standard description here. Wine has a ripe aroma of dark cherries, plums, and sweet baking spices from from French and American oak. The palate is richly concentrated with soft tannins and a juicy, fresh uh, fruitiness. Intense yet vibrant. Love that. It's finished on the wave of spiced damsons. So a French and American oak. How does that yes. work, do you think? Combo, man. It's a good combo, that isn't it? Uh, so just uh, one, one panel would be French oak and then American, then they sort of build it like that. Or maybe, maybe, maybe they, they, uh, they keep it in one barrel. Yeah. for a little while and then transfer it to another. So they may keep it in the American oak and then take it to a, a French oak barrel. I, I, I love it when any drink, they, when they do that, when they stop it, you know, put, you know, put, make the distilling process in a whiskey barrel and you just get yes. Oh, that makes a, a huge difference. Um, I've gone for a French uh, Merlot this week. I've gone for a Saint-Emilion Grand Cru. Now, before, I, I mean, I'll get into some of the flavours a little bit later on, but all I need to say is that this Saint-Emilion... Uh, is one of the most popular of all the Bordeaux wine regions. Um, and the words Grand Cru uh, indicate that this wine has passed a specialty tasting panel. So this has been tested by the big boys. Like, this is, this is good. This is a good wine. Uh, have you been to saint Mignon? I have not. No, no. It's, it's beautiful. I've been there. I went there and... Uh, um, wonderful place to go to. Obviously, there is just... There are wine... There are wine Cellars after wine cellar, um, and it's an amazing place, really beautiful. And obviously, of course, the wine is absolutely incredible. Shame we didn't get there for the World Cup. Big, big shame. I know, I know. would have been amazing. But you know, anywhere in France, you can have some great bowls of red wine. 
Okay, Mark, let's get stuck into the football. There's one game that I need to start with. I've been super excited to talk to you. Bizarrely, didn't even talk about it with you yesterday afternoon. But my boys, Arsenal, we have beaten a top six side away from home for the first time, I think, since 2016. First time that we've won at Old Trafford in the Premier League since 2006. It was a scrappy 1-0 win. But, Mark, guess what it says on the back of the newspaper? It says a win. doesn't matter how you do it. Um, the only thing I'd say to that is a top six side from last season. Okay. Yes. And okay. they're very much a long, long way and far further away from a top six this season than they were last season, that's for sure. Because they only scraped it in the end. And deservedly so. They were an amazing run second half of the, se- second half of the season. Um, but geez, they look a long way off it. But yes, this it was a good performance from Arsenal. No, no, no two words about it. Dominated, probably should have won the game more comfortably. Thomas Party, I thought, was very, very good. I mean, if that is an indication of him potentially even getting better, um, that that is pretty awesome. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. I mean, Roy Keane was very, very much um, actually giving his portrait, saying that remind him a lot of. Uh, Patrick Vieira, as did Jamie Redknapp, and he, you know, that complete player, not necessarily a, a holding midfielder or a player that just wins balls and, and lays the ball off. He was he put on a bit of a, you know, put on pretty much a complete performance in midfield for Arsenal, and and it was a huge benefit, I thought, to El Nini. Um, El Nini, who's been for me probably the most surprised, uh, surprisingly uh, sort of best performer. At Arsenal this season, I think out on a whole, I think if anyone said that to me last season, by the way, next season El Nini will be Arsenal's, arguably Arsenal's one of the most influential players in the first sort of six, seven rounds of the season, I would have said, you, you know, you're kidding yourself. I think most Arsenal fans would have. Um, so yeah, no, listen, it was a, it was a really good performance, and, and I think also on top of all that, the, the really important thing is that Aubameyang found himself back on the score sheet again. Yeah, yeah. Since signing that new contract, he's been a little slow, which. I'm sure any player after signing a new deal, especially at Arsenal, given their track record with you know getting a, a, a guy on a, on a big long contract, you, you need that performance to to step up a level. But it's so funny you mentioned El Neni. We're talking about a guy they picked up from Basel. He's then since sort of been in and around the squad. He's sent him out to Turkey on loan. Uh, he's already worn the the armband uh, for us uh, in Europe this year. It's just one of the great resurgence. But this is the sort of thing that you can get out of a manager who knows how to manage players. And and that's what I get a sense of. When you watch them play, you go, Arteta, I'm sure he has flaws. Of course he does as a manager. But one thing that he doesn't have is he doesn't lack that ability of understanding how to... Like, he just knows how to get the best out of people. And it's great to watch. I was watching an interview that he gave uh, only, I think, last week it was, uh, Mikel Arteta, and he was talking about the time he spends at getting to know his players. So he wants to know their personalities. He, you know, he knows that obviously there's a whole lot of different cultural backgrounds. So he has a, he has a, a, a job at task to, he himself says, to, to have a better understanding of them also culturally, not so much necessarily, you know, what they're like on a day-to-day basis, but what, what makes them tick? What, what, which buttons are there that he needs to press? How does he approach each individual player, not necessarily using the same tactic with every player? And that is really, really good management. That, that goes without saying. And I think for me, throughout my career, that's probably one of the biggest criticisms I have with the vast majority of managers that though so many of them took so little uh, time or made so little effort in trying to understand players a little bit better 
Um, they had a certain style of management, and that's it. You either sank or you swam under them. And um, there are so many players I played with that had you have dealt with them differently, you would have got so much more from them and, and had a, such a better response from them. Um, and you see that most of the time when new managers come into a club. And I think that's what Mikel Arteta's done really, really well. So he, he's a new manager that's come in, inherited a squad, had limited opportunities to, to really delve into the, the transfer market and go, right, these are none of my players. I need to buy this, this, and this player. It's taken a bit of time. But he's also done really, really well, obviously, as we all know, promoting youth, but also bringing players that kind of look like they're handing out the door back into to the, the, the front of things, to becoming important players. And Lenny is the great example. I think Granit Xhaka has become a, a far better player under Mikel Arteta. So he's head down. He's worked a lot harder. He's now been very disciplined. He seems to be a lot more under control. And that comes about because of the, the, the team's understanding of the tactics, the team's belief in the manager, trusting the manager's ideas, his training sessions, and therefore everybody knowing their job, doing their job, and in turn it helps everyone out. And everyone actually improves as a player. And I think with El Nini, that's a great example, is that he he's kind of playing like he... Obviously his performances are better than what they were previously. However, he knows his job. He's got players around him he can trust. They're doing their job. And he's able to to use his strengths in the game, to influence the game, and to benefit Arsenal. So speaking about tactics then, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, where did he go wrong? Because they look... I mean, both... To be honest, though, it was a game of chess yesterday. It did feel like, you know, both had sort of almost similar tactics in many respects. But where did he go wrong? Does he know his players at all? I think he knows his players, but I think one of the issues potentially is that his players... There's some players in that, in that group, I think, who think they've worked Ole Gunnar Solskjaer out. And I, I get the feeling that some of them don't think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is good enough to be a manager of a club at that level and to take them onto another level. I think there's, a, there's some players in that group that are almost starting to throw their toys out of the pram a little bit, almost taking their foot off the pedal a little bit. Who do you think? Which players? Name names. I mean, (laughs) listen, it's the usual suspects. And I think there was an interesting reaction to the penalty that was given in favour of Arsenal. Obviously, Paul Pogba's made a a mistake, right? And and everybody makes mistakes. And obviously, I've I've often been one to be quite vocal about Paul Pogba's Pogba's performances. Um, And and again... uh, it's hard not to criticise him because he was way below par, but he's not the only one. You know, Bruno Fernandes, I thought, was really poor. And it was interesting to see Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba on the ANR box as the penalty was taken. Neither of them moved a step in direction of their goal to try and defend if, but, uh, if, you know, sorry, if uh, David De Gea had made a save and the ball had rebounded out, if the ball had hit the post. Neither of them were in the game anymore. They weren't looking to pick up anyone. They weren't looking to do anything. They just stood there and watched. And then when the ball went in the back of the net, you can see Bruno Fernandes look straight at Paul Pogba. Was, for me, it was very obvious. There was something said before it was taken, just immediately after the foul, Bruno Fernandes towards Paul Pogba. And I don't know whether there is a disagreement between the two, whether it's a case of them complaining to each other that the, the tactics are not great, that, you know, here we go again, almost one of those things. It just seems like there's a lot of players in that group that just are not happy um, with 
with the, the, the tactics of the team, with the performance of the team. Midweek, listen, I, I think the 5-0 the five uh, midweek was, was a, a, a disguise, was, was covering up the performance, covering up the, the cracks that have been appearing all this season with Manchester United. And the game only changed once, once the substitutions were made. Once, once we saw Marcus Rashford come on and Bruno Fernandes, the game completely changed at that moment in time. Prior to that, Manchester United were poor. I mean, Leipzig worked much better, but the game only changed then. So then you, you fast forward it and you look at the performance on the weekend, it was just a lacklustre performance and almost a, a sense of, here we go again and yeah, we're going to struggle today. We've had, a bad, we've had bad performances after bad performances at home. We haven't been able to break down the opposition. It just looked like almost they were resigned to the fact that the same, the same old uh, problems re- reoccurring. And a worry that their best third on the field is, is clearly their, their fourth half. And they just didn't look like scoring at all. I, I, looking at that game, I, you think, where is a goal probably going to come from? Yeah, I mean, Mark, Marcus Rashford was, was a lot quieter than he normally has been. Mason Greenwood, you know, since the whole England thing, has been a shadow of himself. I mean, he did score a good goal midweek against RB Leipzig. He had a, half a chance... Uh, in the game against Arsenal, Bert Leno, that makes actually a really good save, I believe, at his, at his far post from a Marcus Rashford ball. Um, and, uh, yeah, the understanding going forward just doesn't seem to be quite right, doesn't quite seem to be there. I mean, listen, in the end, uh, Manny and I were a little bit unlucky also not to get a point because, you know, we saw uh, Donny van der Beek come on, down the right-hand side, smashes the ball across the 18-yard the, the ball, the six-yard box, and it almost ended up in the back of the net. I mean, it was incredible the way that the deflections took place and ended up hitting Bert Leno in the head onto the near post and falling again for Bert Leno. I mean, that's when you know you, you, your luck's on your side. But yeah. part of that's because you own your own luck as well. And Arsenal did, did put in the effort. So, Mark, I think um, a theme that I'm picking up from today's episode that we should be really putting on our manager's hats right now. You know, we're sort of approaching this episode as if we're a part of the backroom staff, okay? So I want to ask you your thoughts on the decision. Now, this is big. I was looking forward to asking you this. But pretend that we're from Everton, okay? So we're backroom staff or in the manager's setup of Everton. We've made the executive decision to rest, drop, whatever you want to say, um, Jordan Pickford for the weekend. So we're then going to tell Olsen, who's going to play against Newcastle, no matter what happens, you could have a blinder, you're not going to be playing the next game. Is that the right decision? Because that's exactly what they did. Um, I, I thought it was bizarre. Um, I, I actually wasn't aware of that comment that was made. So I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that when you start to mess around with the golfing position like that, that's very dangerous ground. Maybe Carlo, Carlo Ancelotti is hoping for a response from Jordan Pickford because up until this point, he's had no real competition for the number one position at Everton. And, you know, there's no hiding from the fact the last 12 to 18 months, you know, Jordan Pickford's form has been incredibly erratic mm-hmm. and he's made a lot, a lot of high-profile mistakes. And, and when you were talking about a top, top-class international goalkeeper, you can't afford to make so many mistakes like Jordan Pickford has made that have led directly to goals, that are, that are directly associated with your own individual mistakes as a goalkeeper. And I think he's lucky, he's very fortunate that it's taken until only just now in this previous transfer window for Everton to bring in a goalkeeper that's there to compete 
with Jordan Pickford for that number one position. So once you make that decision to lean him out of the side, well, you know, and a goalkeeper like Olsen who's an experienced goalkeeper, came in and played very, very well. I don't understand why he wouldn't stick with him for the next couple of games at least to, to give him an opportunity to stake a claim. I mean, it's not like you can say it's harsh on Pickford because I don't think it is. I actually, like I said, I think he's very fortunate. I think he's now again incredibly fortunate that that is the case, that he's going to be playing the next game because I don't think he deserves to on form be back in the side until such time as maybe Olsen has a bad run himself. So what's the psychology, though, to light a really, really small fire underneath Pickford that only lasts literally one game? Like... Yeah, you're not, even, you're not even really punishing him. I'm not, I'm not talking about punishing him, but you're not really making him uh, responsible for his, for his actions, you know, or his, for his indifferent performances mm-hmm. for over the last, last season and a half or so. And then, okay, let, let's say we forget about what happened last year. We talk about even just his form this season. His, his form this season has been incredibly inconsistent already. And in a short number of games that have been played. So I don't get the logic in it. Um, other than he's trying to get a response, an immediate response from, from Jordan Pickford. But what is it telling him? Right, you're staying out of this game because I want you to clear your hand because you need to be ready for the next game. And for Olsen, doesn't matter how well you play... You're not playing next time. Sorry, I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't agree with that logic. So then, if we don't agree with that logic, you and I then go and have a steak and a red, and we sit down and go, "Yeah, I'm not feeling it here at Everton. There's an opening at Brighton, so we go right. Let's move to Brighton." So you and I have moved to Brighton. We've packed our bags. You're goalkeeping coach, uh, and I'm just sort of encouragement. You know, just generally around the. The, the, um, facilities. Your, you know what they have. What they have these days at Premier League clubs is they have kit man, yep. actually assistant kit man, assistant your assistant kit man, who obviously is, is assisting the main kit man. Yeah. But your dual role is then not only to hand out the, the washing, do the washing and everything else, and the folding, and the ironing. Is also once the guys go on that training field. Actually, even before you're setting up the training field. Yeah. Per instruction from the manager. Yep. You have a piece of paper with the with the diagrams of how each session is going to be set up. You run around, put all the cones down, and make sure the balls are all pumped up. All the equipment is out there, and when the drills are actually occurring, if a ball goes astray, off target, you're the one that's running after it, collecting yep. the ball. So you're a ball boy. You're a PE uh, teacher, really. <laughs> yeah, you 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 literally are. You're, you're, the, you're, the job, you're the job lot, mate. You, you're doing everything. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. So, I mean, and hence why we've made the decision to move to Brighton, you know, for the role. Yes. You know, big opportunity. So we're, we're sitting there, we're going, right, Maddie's doing all right, you know, clubs in a good spot. But then we hear that Graham Potter says that uh, he's not going to play on the weekend. And he says, it's, to quote, a breather for Matty, who has played a lot of football over the last two to three years, and I'm looking forward to seeing... Robert Sanchez, of course, played alone at Rochdale last season. So then we've gone and had our wine. We've had our steak. Are we sitting there? Are we believing what Graham said? Or do we think, no, he does probably need a break? By the way, my son has played against um, Sanchez when he's played for number 23s at Brighton, Sanchez. And he says he's got the best side, side winder that he's ever seen from a goalkeeper. What's a side? Like the, the throw? But no, the kick. So you've got the ball, and you literally—it's that—it's it's that Spanish South American yeah. hitting it right on, like you know, almost like yeah, at a, at a, at a side, and, and it's kind of level. It's, and it yeah. stays one level all the way, maybe six foot high. The ball goes all the way along the pitch, and the accuracy is incredible. Apparently, anyway, 
Um, again, I'm not buying that, right? So rather than, I mean, what, he, what he said to Matty Ryan behind closed doors is, I would like to think different to what the official word is. I think it's something along the lines of, you've, yes, you've played a lot of games, and maybe, I've, as the manager, I'm, I'm, I'm being Graham Potter. This is not my personal opinion, but this is Graham Potter saying to him, I don't think you've performed as well as when I first came to the club, and therefore I think you're tired, I think you've played a lot of games, so I want to take you out of the firing run a little bit, and I'm going to give uh, Sanchez an opportunity here because he's done incredibly well and he's a huge challenge, blah, 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 but I need to take you out and let you rest a little bit because we're also on a bad run of form and I need to, I want to change things up. So I think that's something along those lines that's probably happened. Um, and Matty, and rightly so, would be fuming, right? Uh, inwardly. I'm not saying outwardly, I'm saying inwardly you'd be fuming, you'd be really disappointed with that. But I think the writing was on the wall towards the end of the transfer window because Brighton also made a bid for Emmy Martinez, your, your, you know, your, your favourite all-time player and, and the one that you've got posters above your, your, bed, your bed, you know, when you yeah. go to sleep, you say goodnight to him every night, yeah, yeah. everything else. Yeah, kiss. So, and I, I, at that time, I was very, very surprised. I was like, wow, Brighton, what is that about? Because Emmy Martinez was very, very outspoken about, I'm, I want to be number one. I'm not going to be signing anywhere. I'm not going to be number one. So there's no doubt to me, had he signed for Brighton, he would have gone straight into that starting eleven, and Matty would have found himself out of, the, out of the team and less likely an opportunity to come back into it because Martinez has proven in a short period of time that he, that he can do a really good job as he did at Arsenal last season. Um, so the writing was already on the wall. So is it of great surprise that he's made that decision to leave Mount aside? No. But a little bit, yes, because he's putting the goalkeeper that's got zero experience in the Premier League. Mm. That, that would have to be the stinger, if you were Matt, for sure. Yeah, but he's obviously, you know, the guy that's come in, Sanchez, he's, he's six foot six, six foot five, six foot six, so he's massive, a lot bigger stature than Matty. Um, and I think he's probably looking for someone that's going to dominate his eight-yard box a little bit more. Um, someone who's possibly going to play, uh, you know, Matty plays a high line as well, so I don't know. I, I, the only thing I can think of is the dominating in his six-yard box. And maybe he's analysed it. Graham Potter has said, and this is, this is the problem, when you're on the, inverted commas, the shorter side of being a goalkeeper, what's perceived to be a goalkeeper, it's very easy for manager to turn around and go, well, that's why he's not able to reach that, that shot. Well, that's why he wasn't able to make that save. And that's, that's, the, that's actually a lot, a lot of people's mindset when it comes to a goalkeeper. I want a goalkeeper who's six foot six. And, and more often than not, and I haven't seen it from Sanchez yet, I'm not really sure, I actually didn't see a lot of the game on the weekend, is even with the big goalkeepers, most of them don't come off their line. If anything, they actually stay on their line more than someone like Manny Ryan, because Manny Ryan does actually come off his line quite a lot. So it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It just reverts back to the fact that the mindset is, he's a big stature, he's a big frame, he covers more of the goal. Even when he stretches out, he's a bigger, he's a bigger um, frame to try and beat. And he doesn't have to spring off as much to make that save that's further out of reach rather than Matty because he's a little bit shorter, has to put a lot more effort into it. And if the time is not 100% right, he's not going to get there. And that is a general perception for a lot, a lot of people in Europe in terms of a goalkeeper needs to be a minimum height of six foot three, six foot four. In Europe in general, do you think? Or... I, I think for a lot, Europe. a lot of clubs, yes. Yeah. yeah, there's not many goalkeepers around. You know, listen, Ika Casillas was was is one meter 80, 82, Sorry, 
So he is one of the short. Fabian Barthez was probably even shorter. There are some examples. There are, if you look in the Premier League, there are not a lot of goalkeepers. I mean, Matty's just on, what is Matty? One, Matty, one, one meter 84, I think he is. So there are not that many goalkeepers at that height. Most of them are taller than that and, 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 and by some. So then um, we've taken Matt aside. I've obviously put the drills, you know, set the drills up, put the cones around. You've taken him for a quiet word. What advice would you be giving him? Because he's not, you, I doubt he's been dropped kind of indefinitely. No, like he's not. You know, I'm sure he's still very much the first choice keeper in, in the long scheme of things, at least until the transfer window. But what's your advice at this stage to, to not sort of get too eaten up by it? So firstly, the, the, the reasoning for him being left out of the side, it was not, not a case of like Carlo Ancelotti's word is that Olsen's going to play, but Pickford's going to play the next game. This one is, I want to take you out because you've played a lot of games and I want to see what the other goalkeeper can do. So he will then make a call on whether or not he believes Sanchez was played a decent enough game to retain his position. So there is a bit of, there's uncertainty, there's grey area. And, and that's kind of the normal way of doing it. Once you decide to make a change for your goalkeeper, you generally stick with it for a little while and you persist with it a little bit because you're trying to justify the decision that you've made because you're thinking that the goalkeeper that's going to come in would potentially play, you need, actually as the manager, you need him and expect him to play better. As the goalkeeping coach, it, it really comes down to, ultimately the manager is the, he's the man that makes the decisions, right? And the goalkeeping coach is the best position uh, coach to make a decision or at least give his advice and his opinion on the, the pros and cons of each goalkeeper. And I know Ben Roberts, pretty well. I was with him at, at Middlesbrough with my understudy when I first arrived at, I became my understudy when I first arrived at Middlesbrough. And um, he, he was a big fan of Matty Ryan. He was a big reason why, why you know, when uh, Chris Hutton brought him into to Brighton, there's actually, it was down to Ben Roberts having watched him on numerous occasions. Um, so he's a big fan, but he also has a responsibility with all the other goalkeepers. And he will be training with, with, with Sanchez. And it'll be also, it'll go, it'll be another, another feather in his cap that if Sanchez comes into the team and performs really well, that's also off the back of Ben Roberts, the goalkeeping coach, doing a really good job with him and helping him develop. So then it becomes a, a case of he's got to try and, he's got to try and balance his, 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 uh, his opinion on, on each of them and say, well, these are the pros and cons of each of them. If you want a goalkeeper who's going to do more of this, this is what I would. This is who I would choose. So, like, say a goalkeeper that's bigger, more of a presence, you would think, then it's Sanchez. If you want a goalkeeper who's tried and tested in the Premier League, has done incredibly well for us since he's arrived at the club. Yes, we're not we're not on a great particular run at the moment. But none of the goals are necessarily his mistakes. None of the goals are his mistakes. And could he have done better on some of the goals? Of course, but everyone else could have done better on those goals as well. So, it's really just nitpicking and. I think it's Graham Potter got something in his head about the type of goalkeeper that he wants. And at the moment, it looks like a, it looks like a battle for Matty to, to regain his position. So as a goalkeeper coach, I pull him aside and go, listen, Matty's made his decision. I've given my opinion on both of you. Listen, I work with, with, uh, with Sanchez. You know, we, we work all together. We know, how, we know his strengths and weaknesses. We know your strengths and weaknesses. In the end, I give my verdict on both the way you've been training, the way you've progressed, the, what, the current state of play, and ultimately the manager makes those decisions. And I can only go with that. I can't say to him you're making, I can say to him you're making a mistake, 
but that's not my role. That's not my job. And most goalkeeping coaches won't. I've had goalkeeping coaches in the past that will sit on the fence completely and they will push all the blame to the manager whenever you confront them. Whenever you ask them a question, they'll go, it's got nothing to do with me. Even though they work with you every day, even though they're the expert who's supposed to be coaching you, they just don't want any responsibility. They will, they will avoid any responsibility. They'll even not talk to you about it because they don't want to get into a discussion with it because they they, they've got no answers. Or the answers they've got is actually not something you want to, tell you, want to hear because they're probably telling the manager that you, they need to change the goalkeeper. So rather than a goalkeeper standing up, coach and standing up and saying, you know what, I've, I've also influenced that decision because I believe that this is the right decision to make. 99.9 of them haven't got the personality to actually stand up to a decision like that. They will hide behind the manager. Is that a goalkeeping coach quirk or do you think that other coaches in the setup are a bit like that too? Oh, just, it's, just for... it's a total, no, it's a total thing that happens within the group. It's, it's mm. absolutely. You'll see it with assistant managers. Whenever a player has a complaint and the, the assistant managers, one of the assistant managers jobs to a large degree is to go and see what the players... What, what the attitude of the players is like, how everyone's feeling. The players that are literally, say the players that have been out of, out of the 11, someone has been dropped maybe, someone has dropped a bit of form left out of the side and they, they, they want to get the feel of what, what's happening. When those players are upset and they try and what they want to get some answers, the assistant manager very rarely, very, very rarely, there are some exceptions, will turn around and go, listen, you know, these are the reasons. You haven't performed at this level. We've, this is what you used to be really good. Most of them will say, listen, the manager's made his decision and that's it. You know, the manager's made the decision. I, 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 I'm not really sure. Or, you know, you need to speak to the manager about it. I, I, I can't answer that for you. And, and that's, that's the nature of it. You know, people will like, very, very few people will step up and be accountable for decisions or be prepared to, to be, put themselves in a position where they're, they're questioned about decisions that have been made. Um, you know, I, I've had a few. Uh, Paul Barron who I had as a goalkeeping coach at Middlesbrough for about seven years. He was one of the few exceptions that would be completely honest with you, tell you the situation. Um, I had it with Steve McLaren when Paul Barron rang me actually and said to me, listen. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Just to let you know, Steve McLaren is at you know, is, is wants, wants to drop you from the side. And I've been telling him he's mad to. And, but, you know, I just want to let you know. And I said, yeah, all right, all right, cool. And then when I confronted Steve McLaren about it, he said, no, I haven't made any decision. I'm, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't decided anything. And I, and I didn't want to say, well, Paul Barron told me it, because I know you did, because you've told him and, you've, and he's told me. I, I don't want to put him in there. But he's getting, he can put two and two together. It's not, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? But I'm not going to say it. Um, Mike Kelly's another one that I had at uh, Fulham. Says it how it is. You know, you know exactly where you stand with him. He either loves you or he hates you. He's Marmite. Marmite or Vegemite. Where's your point? Where are you coming from? He's either Vegemite or he's Marmite. So you either love it or you hate it. And that's how it is. And, and which one did you prefer? You preferred the honesty, obviously. 
Of course, hundred percent. And then you know what? As as difficult as honesty is to take at the heat of the moment, and even at the heat of the moment, if you disagree with it, it's more about I respect someone that at least had at least had the 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 gall to tell you. At least was strong enough, and they took an opinion, they stuck with it, and whether or not I agree with it or not, at least they had the balls to say it to you. And so many of them hide. So many of them don't have it. I had a Nigel Pearson at, at Leicester. Didn't, could not tell me that he was going to drop me out of the team. And then two weeks later, he came to me and, and joking with me as if nothing happened, like we were best buddies, and put his arm around me. And that's when it exploded. And that's why I told him my peace of mind. Because I said to him, I know you. You know me. I've known you for a long, long time. And I, go, I know you don't have, you don't tell your players when you leave them, uh, put them inside and leave them out of the side. I said, but the problem I had with you is that you told me the week before, if I, it's up to me now to keep my position. If I play well, you'll keep your position. And if you don't, you come out. And I said to him, that's all I want. And then I, pl- I, and then I played the next game, I played well, and the very next game he drops me and doesn't put me back in again. So I said to him, did I play bad in the next game? He said, no. I said, did I play well? I guess yes. He said, answer that one for me. You've told me, if I play well, you're going to stay in. And if you don't, You'll come out. I played well, but you still took me out and you still didn't have the balls to tell me. And that's where I have a problem. If he then said to me, if he said to me, you know what? I know I told you last week, if you play well, you're going to keep your spot. However, I've changed my mind because this is what I need for my team. And I know you can't produce it as well as the other goalkeeper. And if he said to me, Cashman Michael can kick the ball further and you, he can turn the... The defence, he, he, can, he can turn an attack from the opposition into an attack for us in a split second because his distribution, his ability to knock the ball 100 metres up the pitch, and you can't do that. And all the other sides of it where you're better than he is, I'm happy for that to be okay. I'm happy for still to play him because he makes up more, more for it in the ability of his distribution. I wouldn't have been happy, but I would have said, okay, I understand. But he didn't have the balls to tell me, and that was the problem. And most managers don't. And did you find yourself grappling as you got a bit older as well? But finding yourself, it's easier to, to speak like that to people? Like oh, yeah. Want, Gosh, yeah. Yeah, at that stage in my career, it's a lot, a lot easier when you're older. I mean, I, I had, at Middlesbrough, it happened in uh, 2006. So I was 32 years old. Um, it, it, it didn't, sorry, 30, 34. Was I 34? What was that? 2006, uh, 34 years old. And it was leading up to the World Cup. So it was a really big season for us, you know, 2005, 2006 season. So I came off the back of helping Australia qualify for the World Cup against Uruguay in November 2005. We had an amazing run in Europe, ended up getting to the Europa League, or the UEFA Cup final. Um, Steve McLaren was the manager and it all came to a head in the, in sort of end of December, January of the 2005, 2006 season. And it, it was difficult because you're thinking World Cup's around the corner. And I already knew Gus Hedding was, was looking for a reason to leave me out of the team. So I knew I had to play and I had to play well. And I knew that Zoko wasn't playing. So if I'm playing, I'm already at an advantage so long as I'm playing well enough. And he was just looking. We went through a bit of a rough patch. And I got criticised for not coming out and taking crosses. Then I got criticised for coming out and taking a cross or punching a ball that after about... A minute after I punched it away, ended up we scored. We, we considered a goal because we didn't deal with it, 
and I got blamed for everything. Every time the ball went in the back of the net, he looked at, he looked at everything I did to try and point the finger at me. And that's what it became in the end. So, and I still believe that now in hindsight, and that's like, we're talking, you know, we're talking, what is it, 14 years later. And so that was a difficult period of time. And even at that age, and because I suppose I was over my 30s, I, I still... I still was able to, to confront him about it and say I just wasn't having it. And I put in a transfer request because he became such, he was just such a liar that I had enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with, with that, when I was at Leicester, it was pretty easy because I was at the stage in my career where I just went, you know what, I've made this huge change and uplift. I've moved away from my family. And, you know, it's two and a half hours away from home in one direction. And, I'll, you know, you can't commute that every day. Um, and I, I made a big sacrifice, you know, and and off the basis of him telling me, you play well, you keep the spot, and he completely conned me in it, you know, and that was the hard bit to take. And, and it's not like I've had other decisions go against me when Gus told me that he was going to leave me out for the game against Croatia. I, listen, I completely, I didn't agree with it. I can understand, I can understand he felt that I don't know. Like he, he still blamed me for the goal against Japan when we, we won three one in the end. He, I think he blamed me for goals that we considered against Brazil. Don't ask me which one, but I think he blamed me for, them. or at least said I should have saved them. Not that, never said it to my face, but that was my feeling. There was there was also an undercurrent. I think there was other people in the background also in his ears saying, "Oh, you've got to play Zelko. You've got to play Zelko. It's against Croatia. He's going to play unbelievable." But then if you look at it, analyze it. He was average in all the games leading up to it. He was average in all the friendly games. He played for about five games for AC Milan that season. And then he played in three out of the five friendly games leading up to the World Cup. And each game, he was shaky. And every time the ball went in the box for a cross, he was shaking all of it. And I was just like, how can you play someone who clearly isn't in a good run of form because he hasn't played enough football, but you're going to play him in this game when the emotions are even higher? And it's the most important game in Australia's history. So you end up thinking, okay, and it's not the time at that time as well. And with Gus, it just wouldn't have worked. Didn't matter if you were right or not. He was never going to admit that you're right there and then. He admitted down the track and he admitted to me last year. So we're talking, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're talking, what is that, 13 years later, he admitted to me, but he wouldn't do it at the time, that's for sure. What about when you were, when we were playing Croatia and you were watching and Kalach, of course, made some serious errors. What were you thinking at the time there? Were you thinking, hmm, have I proved my point? Or was I was just angry. I was angry that this could potentially end our time in the World Cup at something that I thought could have been avoided. Mm. Um, and listen, it's easy to say that in terms of, it's not, who's to say that I wouldn't have gone on there and made a mistake? You know, it, it, no one's immune to making mistakes. But the chances, the law of averages in terms of playing so many games throughout the season, playing at a good level. I mean, I, I, I thought particularly even once I got back in the team uh, late January after McLaren came back to me and said, oh, listen, I want you back in the team and everything else. And, and I ended up going, well, you're not going to let me go, so I have to go. And he said, well, no bids are coming for you. I said, they have, because I know I've spoken with the clubs. I know who they, who they are. I know what's happening. And you just don't want to let me go. It's all right. Anyway, so... You know that, you, you know, so I'm looking at it from the outside going, I can't react because there are going to be cameras on me. There are going to be people who are going to interpret every, every sort of reaction I give on the bench. And then I thought I need to be the furthest point away from the manager. So I was at the very end of the, the, 
the, the bench away from the manager because I didn't want to see his reactions. I didn't want him to look at me and think, what does he think in his head right now? I want to be the furthest point away so he couldn't even see me. And I just thought, you've got to be as neutral as possible. Um, and a part of me was, it was the, the devastation, the angeriness, being angry and the devastation that we could potentially be out of the World Cup now off the back of this. Won't be long, I promise. Back to Ollie and Mark in just 15 seconds. If you enjoy Two Sharp Reds, though, make sure you search The Gig and Pod wherever you get your podcasts. David Weiner is joined by thousands of games of experience both on and off the field. It's a great listen. G-E-G-E-N-P-O-D, The Gig and Pod. Okay, back to Two Sharp Reds. Halftime drinks here on the Two Sharp Reds. Mark, how are you enjoying your wine? I've got to say, during that beautiful the bedtime story, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I... I got through a fair bit of my wine. It was nice to just sort of sit back. It was like listening to an audio book, going to sleep, in a good way, though. But how are you enjoying uh, enjoying your Portuguese red wine? I uh, love it. Absolutely love it, mate. It's, um, the fruitiness is very prominent. Yep. So, but, but you know, when I say prominent, you can really taste it, uh, but without being overpowering. Uh, and the other thing that really springs out to me, since 2003... This, this grape, this type of grape variety has won over 60 medals. Jeepers. So not the wine itself, just like the grape. The grape variety that they use right. to make this wine, which, you know, I can see why. You know, I can see why. It's a, it's a very, very tasty wine and an enjoyable bottle of wine. I like it a lot. Well, I've gone for the Saint Emilion uh, Merlot. Very, very nice wine. Very nice. As I said to you, they've, it's past a specialist tasting panel. So, you know, it, it is a good wine. My issue is, though, not only very dry, which is fine, you know, dry in a good way, but it's it's used in an ideal world. You need to be having uh, some like a grilled roasted meat, you know, and and kind of on its own. It's not really. So I mean, it's not being complimented at all by anything. So that's the, my only criticism with it. Uh, but that's just my fault, uh, you know. There, so there's nothing more I can really say on that. It's okay. So, Mark, it was a big day for Hayley Rasso yesterday as you went to Wembley Stadium for probably the first time this year, I would have thought. Or, or maybe not calendar year, but first time this... Or did you go to the... You, no, yes, it would be. You didn't go to the Community Shield, did you? No, I didn't, think, yes. No. So, I think it was the first point this year. I think you're right. Um, trying to think earlier on in the year, um, prior to the previous lockdown... Well, the first lockdown, um, yeah, I don't think I did go to any of the games at Wembley. So, yeah, it, it was the first time. Um, you know what? It was like, you know, it was like I was there yesterday, let's be honest. It's, uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work there quite a lot. And uh, I think that um, it's, it's a great venue to be at. It's just so disappointing that, you know, that in the current pandemic that we're in, that there was no fans there to really enjoy the moment. I thought, I thought it was a really entertaining game of football. I thought that Everton put on a really good show. Everton were... Guilty of just not taking the opportunities when they when they were put in front of them. There was a couple of moments in the first half where I thought that Everton should have done better in front of goal. Haley was in the middle of all that. I thought also Manchester City were very very lucky not to have Lucy Bronze sent off as Haley was through. Lucy Bronze, an incredible athlete, very very quick, made a last ditch tackle as the goalkeeper came out of the eight-yard box as well. And I don't know whether the referee got a little bit confused the fact that the goalkeeper came out. And there was a coming together of all, and she she um, 
I think she, I don't know, maybe confused that the goalkeeper was there. So Lucy Bronze wasn't the last defender, but she actually was by quite a long way. And she chose to give her a yellow card and a free kick to Everton rather than a red card. And uh, that's where I think Everton were very, very unfortunate. And then there was another couple of moments after, uh, after that where from a corner, the ball popped out to Haley, sort of like about eight yards out, nine yards out. It was a really snapshot, really quick uh, sort of moment in the game. And she unfortunately got too much on it and hit it over, smashed it over the crossbar. Um, so they could have gone either way, that one. But there was a particular moment where Manchester City tried to play out at the back, got caught in possession, Haley won the ball back, and she needed to lay the ball square to her teammate Valerie uh, Govan, who was in a really good position. She was about, I think she was just inside the 8 yard box, um, nowhere in front of her other than the goalkeeper. So she was in a far better position, free, whereas Haley had a defender in front of her, plus the goalkeeper in an acute angle. And she smashed a decent hit shot, but it was pretty easy and comfortable for the keeper to make the save. I think in hindsight, watching the game, she'll realise that her teammate was in a far better position and should have laid it square. Um, and they were the defining moments, you know, at the other end, um, we saw that, you know, Manchester City got quality all over the place. Um, Sam Lewis in midfield, the American, you know, really good player, hardworking. She's a big girl, tall girl. And the aerial threat was always constant. So Man City looked in a good corner and she got on the end of it. It was a powering header in the back of the net. Um, the one thing I'd say is strange for me for Man City was the tactical position of um, uh, Rose Lavelle. So the other American midfielder who I thought was probably the best player at the World Cup. I know she got, I think she, I think she, didn't, she didn't get the word for the best player. I think she got second or third but I thought she was outstanding for the US um, in 2018 in France. And they played her wide on the left. And I thought she was not enough involved in the game. Her strengths are her ability to get all over the pitch. She wins balls down. She reads the game really well. And she's very good at also running in oppositions and taking them on. She very rarely got that opportunity to do so. And the few moments in the first half where she did actually come inside and had the ball in the right position, she actually caused... Everton, a lot, lot of problems. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, she was out of the game a lot. And they did actually substitute her because she wasn't in the game as often as she should have been. And I think for me, that was, that was the wrong position for her. Yeah. But then uh, after the game, did you get a chance to, to speak to Hayley at all? Uh, I did, yeah. So obviously, as the game unfolded, Everton got themselves back in the game. Um, and Valerie Kivon, uh, good header, good flick on a near post, really good goal. And then it was kind of like a, a back-and-forth game, wasn't it? So Everton, Manchester City, end-to-end sort of stuff. I'd have to say Everton goalkeeper was outstanding. She made some phenomenal saves. Um, even at 1-0 when Manchester City were in front, she made an incredible block. Um, Chloe Kelly, who was an Everton player who signed for Manchester City, was always a massive threat. She had a, a great chance from about eight yards out, smashed it, was going to go on the roof of the net, and, and uh, Everton goalkeeper just made itself massive, like made itself big and made an incredible block over the crossbar. Um, and then obviously they got exposed, they got caught on the counter, 2-1, and then tried to push forward again and to, to try and get some out of the game late in the game and ended up being exposed again. So it was probably a fair result in terms of possession, but chances-wise it was a pretty even match. And obviously, understandably, uh, Hayley was devastated after the game. And there was some talk, maybe she wouldn't come out, but she knew we were there and, and she was incredible sport because it, it was very, you could clearly see she was visibly upset about the, the result. And to, you know, to, after such a devastating result that she still was big enough to come out and talk to us was, was great. 
So now I'm just trying to think now as well, um, and I'm just sort of looking at my, my fake encyclopedia knowledge here, um, so I could be totally making this up, but off the top of my head, she would be probably, not, would she be the first Australian to win the FA Cup? If, if they did, did win it, she would have been the only one? Well, first Australian women's player? No, because obviously Craig Johnson's won it before. Right. Um, she would have been, actually, Hayley would have been the second Australian woman player to win the world, uh, to win the FA Cup, sorry. And it was Taryn Rockall who did it with Arsenal. Your team, how do you not know this? Back in 1999, she came on as a, as a substitute. I think it was about the 83rd or 84th minute. Right. Uh, and they beat Southampton 3-0 Arsenal. So, no. But she was the first Australian women's player to play an FA Cup final at Wembley Stadium. There you go. And to start. You know, she didn't come off the bench. So, there you go. No, that's right. No, it's it pretty phenomenal. And I asked her about her experience of playing at Wembley. And she was, you know, even amongst all the, 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 the sadness of the result, uh, the devastation, she, you could see the sparkle and the twinkle in her eye. You know, she came to life and we talked about what was it like to play at Wembley Stadium, you know, to play an FA Cup final. And, uh, you know, that aspect of it, she absolutely loved it and thought it was amazing. Mark, it's another Champions League week, uh, which for me means one thing and one week, uh, one thing and one thing only. It's not that I get to watch Champions League football. It's that I get to look at some of the content that you've been pushing out on the Optus Sport Instagram stories. Um, Favourite one was going through the, the lunch pack. I think you got at Old Trafford, I believe. You, I think you're a little, like a little, yeah, I suppose like a lunch box. Wasn't it? Um, no, I think the one I went through with you was yesterday at the FA Cup final, the Women's FA Cup final. That was yesterday, was it? Right. Yes, it was a salad sandwich. A salad, yeah, it was a salad sandwich. Um, and, uh, yeah, it came, literally was a salad in a sandwich. Um, yeah, I didn't eat it. Didn't eat it. What? Um, no, I, I passed it on to, to my colleague and, and he devoured it. I actually brought my own sandwiches, I have to say. I, I made a sausage and onion wrap with mayo and barbecue sauce on it. So I grilled the sausages at home, fried yeah. the onions, and that sounds pretty I good. made wraps. And my mouth is watering right now talking about it. It was delicious. So, and, and there was a lot of envy there from, uh, from Dan Hemingway, my colleague from Optus Sport, yeah. uh, watching me devour my sausage and onion wraps. I didn't share any. No, I didn't. I was very selfish. So, Mark, you'll be at uh, Chelsea this week as they take on Ren, as you mentioned at the start of the episodes. Um, and just a really sort of, a, sort of an interesting stat, I suppose. I think it's pretty impressive that Edward Mendy has now kept five clean sheets in a row. So it's a beautiful uh, and the best possible start in his new life at, at, uh, at Chelsea. Yeah, absolutely it is. I and mean, it's worked a treat for him. And obviously the masterstroke in terms of bringing him into the club, had a check heavily involved in it. Obviously knows French football pretty well, has a good relationship with Ren because that was the club he was at before he came to Chelsea. So he had a bit more of an inside running on, on his abilities. Uh, they identified, obviously, the goalkeeping position as, as, a, as a position of concern and brought in a goalkeeper that's very different to Kepa. Goalkeeper that likes to come out of his eight-yard box, dominate his eight-yard box. Um, he's also... I think he's better with the ball at his feet. He's got better distribution. He's got a longer kick than Kepa. Um, and he's automatically, I think, uh, received more trust from his defenders. And that, that is to do with performance. So he's come out. He obviously holds himself very well. He, he is a big goalkeeper, but he also presents himself as a big goalkeeper. Kepa is not, he's not a small guy. He's like 6'2". But he kind of presents himself as quite a, a, a timid type of character and a small goalkeeper. And that's why I'm trying to get at. Um, you know, Mendy, you know, he's a little bit lucky on the weekend against Burnley. Uh, a 
Ashley Barnes was through a really fantastic ball play through. So it was bouncing, took a big touch. Mendy tried to come out. He was umming and ahhing about coming out, slipped. And by the time he did get there, Ashley Barnes was back in like close to the ball and he just overhit it and popped it over the, over the crossbar for about 12 yards out, 14 yards out. So he was a little bit fortunate, but you've got to earn that luck, you know. He, he, he made himself reasonably big and, and put Ashley Barnes under a lot of pressure. But yeah, listen, he, he's been so far a big success story for them. And that confidence has, I think, really progressed throughout the whole of the team. Add to the fact you've got Thiago Silva, Kurt, Kurt Zuma, that relationship obviously is working really well. Yeah. So you've got that that triangle between those three players that seems to have been seems to be working really well. And you got some of those new boys really firing on all cylinders as well. Zeke doing well, Werner scoring goals. It's it seems like it's starting to become a happy place. I think the key for Chelsea is that Timo Werner playing out on the left. You had you 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 number nine. So he's played at Tammy Abraham on the weekend. Yeah. And the relationship between Abraham and Timo Werner seems to be a really good one. There seems to be a really good understanding. Uh, Ziyech is, has been phenomenal since he's arrived at the club. Obviously, he's taken time because of injuries, but now he's back fit. And he's fit enough to start. You're starting to see what he's capable of. I, I saw him last season at Chelsea for Ajax. He was incredible. He, I mean, if he can get back to that sort of form, man, he's unplayable at times. So he's already had a big influence on that side. He just adds another dimension to their, to their attack. Um, someone who's is equally at ease with, you know, staying out wide, taking on defenders and playing in across to coming inside, playing one twos, receiving and, and, and shooting a goal. Very, very good at that. So there's a combination of things there. So um, having having that out and out number nine and Timo Werner having his best position out wide because he loves to come in at defenders, loves to come back in on his right foot, got his pace. Um, he's far, far better at the ball, his feet running at someone. Speaking of big success stories, Mark, we've got to talk about the fact that you have had a Portuguese wine and not a Spanish wine. Congratulations. It's a huge move. I actually think you didn't, you didn't have a Spanish wine last week either. Uh, no, I didn't have a French one. Yeah, I yeah. just thought, how good is your memory? Yeah, I had a French one last week. I changed it last week, mate. So this is, uh, this is big. And, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, during the halftime drinks, I'm sure you thoroughly enjoyed it. Mate, I've, uh, I've really loved it. I have to say, it's a, it's a nice bottle of wine. It's good quality. That's always the key. Um, when, you, when you've got a wine, bottle of wine that not only, you know, it talks a great game on the back of the bottle, but it actually delivers as well when you're drinking it. So highly recommend it. And the one thing that stands out for me, there's a number of things that are obviously intense yet vibrant, uh, finishes on a, on a wave of special damsons. I mean, the wave of something, uh, spice, spice damson. So when I think of being on a wave, it's something very positive and it's almost it's difficult to it's difficult to, to, to touch, difficult to get close to because it's on a wave. And the player that stands out for me uh, that's on a different level, almost untouchable. Um, for me, I can't understand why he's not playing for his national team anymore. That was very poor decision for the national manager to rule him out completely but I think it was a knee-jerk reaction. But he's now back to arguably even the best form of his career. Has just recently, as of last season, the end of last season, uh, become Germany's most decorated footballer of all time, surpassing Bastian Schweinsteiger's record of 26 trophies. This guy has now 27 trophies. And I've got no doubt that will go up significantly at come the end of this season. 
Can you can you kind of work out who it is? I think I, I was struggling for a little bit there, but I think I've got it. Do you want me to have a, a, a guess? No, no, don't have no. to go yet. Don't have to go yet. Um, his link-up play with his teammate is phenomenal. Yep. Their combination is brutal, and I would say in an attacking sense, right up there with being the very, very best on the planet right this moment. So his partner should have got his partner should have got um, uh, Ballon d'Or winner. Yep. And if he keeps going like he's already started this season, should be Ballon d'Or winner this season if he keeps going because he's yep. phenomenal. Um, and yeah, what else can I say? He's won twenty-seven trophies throughout his career. And I cannot believe he's not playing for the German national team. Tom, oh, Tom, Thomas Müller. Absolutely. And your grape, didn't uh, the, the grapes that uh, that wine's made out of, that's won a lot of prizes, hasn't it? As well. well, that's it. That's, that's, what, that's also what drew me to it. You know, over 60 medals for this great variety. There you go. So I just thought, you know what, you've got to go for the very best here. And, and someone that is at the very height of his career and has records in terms of medals won, Trophies won, and this guy certainly has been doing that and breaking all sorts of records. So, Mark, I've gone for the Saint Emilion Grand Cru. It is a Merlot from Bordeaux, one of the wine regions from Bordeaux that's uh, known as uh, one of the favourites. Um, this particular wine was on a specialty tasting panel. Uh, passed. I don't know if it says that it necessarily passed with wine colours or if that's, you know, it's like a D, C, B, A kind of system like at school, but it, it passed the test. Very dry, very firm, with plummy fruits. Typical of the Merlot, of course, but with a note of oak, a little bit similar to yours. But I think it's just the one oak as opposed to an American and a French having the combo. Um, But to be enjoyed with uh, grilled and roasted meats, which was the big downfall. So uh, to compare this uh, player, um, this player is certainly one of the most popular players in the Bordeaux region. particularly after his announcement video um, a few years ago now. So he's by far one of the most popular in that region. Very dry in terms of very dry sense of humour from what fans have access to see, but also very dry and straight to the point with his style. I don't think I've ever seen him do a trick, anything flashy. He's just, I just think that 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 dryness in his sense of humour and personality can translate into his style. He was uh, coincidentally born in Tulle, T-U-L-L-E, Tulle, the home of, guess which fruit? The Mm. plum. Oh, the plum, there you go, wow. Which is the overriding fruit uh, uh, other than the grape, obviously, in this wine. Um, And when he spent his time in England, which I think he was here for nine years, he was consistently grilled. Grilled and roasted, much like the meat that you need to be trying with this mellow, but grilled for occasionally performances, but mainly his haircut. It was destroyed from time to time. Do you know who I might be getting at? Um, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of um, uh, Javinho. No. But he, wasn't at, but he wasn't at Arsenal for that long, so it can't be him. No, no. It's nine years at the Gunners uh, and, became a, and became a... a Favourite of Bordeaux, one of the past many tasting tests after his announcement video. Um, Lauren Koscielny. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Was he really good for his hairstyles, was he? Oh, mate, it was the worst. It was like he sort, yeah. of had a, sort of had a flat front, like an in-betweeners hairstyle. Yeah. But then it was a mohawk. 
Yeah, and then no, I, I think he was ridiculed by Arsenal fans. I don't think he was ridiculed by the overall general media. Oh. I think it was Arsenal fans. Like, look at your face now already. You can tell it was Arsenal fans. No, what? No, for his performance or his hair? You guys mate. love to rib your own players, don't you? Mate, I'm talking about his hair. I thought he was a good player. His hair was shocking. It was almost... So you, weren't happy, you weren't happy with the way he left, though, were you? No, it was pretty poor. It was, but it yeah. made him a, a bit of a favourite at Bordeaux, much like this wine, so... Why not? Yeah. Sometimes you just need to let these sort of things go, Mark. Mark, I appreciate your time here uh, on the Two Shot Reds. Would you like to do your outro? Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Um, you know, listen, I, I thought it was a very enjoyable uh, podcast today. I thought that uh, I went on a bit of a, a, a tangent at times, um, got caught up with some of my stories, which does happen every now and then. Um, but I really did enjoy it. I thought that your description of your wine and uh, your player choice was, was very good for a change. Um, I thought that obviously was a lot of thought in that one. So clearly the criticism, which I believe was constructive, um, has, has worked. It has. And uh, you're improving each week. So let that continue. Anyway, on that note, can't wait. For See you later. Week. Obviously a great week of Champions League football coming up. And I look forward to having another discussion with you about all things football next Monday. Cheers, Mark. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 